The Field of Blue Children. That final spring at the State University, a restlessness came over Myra which she could not understand. It was not merely the restlessness of superabundant youth. There was something a little neurotic about it. Nothing that she did seemed quite satisfying or complete. Even when she returned from a late formal dance, where she had swung from partner to partner the whole evening through, she did not feel quite ready to tumble exhausted into bed. She felt as though there must be something still further to give the night its perfect fullness. Sometimes she had the almost panicky sensation of having lost or forgotten something very important. She would stand quite still for a moment with tightened forehead, trying to remember just what it was that had slipped from her fingers, been left behind in the rumble seat of Kirk's roommate's roadster or on the sofa in the dimly lighted fraternity lounge between dances. What's the matter? Kirk or somebody else would ask, and she would laugh rather sharply. <laughs> Nothing. I just felt like I'd forgotten something. The feeling persisted even when every article was accounted for. She still felt as though something were missing. When she had returned to the sorority house, she went from room to room, exchanging anecdotes of the evening, laughing at them far more than their humor warranted. And when finally everyone else had gone to bed, she stayed up alone in her room, and sometimes she cried bitterly without knowing why, crushing the pillow against her mouth so that no one could hear. Or else she sat in pajamas on the window seat and looked out across the small university town with all its buildings and trees and open fields a beautiful dusky blue in the spring night. The dome of the administration building like a snowy peak in the distance, and the stars astonishingly large and close. She felt as though she would strangle with an emotion whose exact nature or meaning she could not understand. When half-drunken groups of serenaders, also restless after late dances, paused beneath her house, she turned on the bed lamp and leaned above them, patting her hands together in a pantomime of delighted applause. When they left, she remained at the window, looking out with the light extinguished, and it was sad, unbearably sad, to hear their hoarse voices retreating down moon-splashed avenues of trees till they could not be heard any longer or else were drowned in the noise of a starting motor whose raucous gravel-kicking departure ebbed quickly to a soft, musical hum and was succeeded at length by the night's complete blue silence. Still seated at the window, she waited with tight throat for the sobbing to commence. When it did... She felt better. When it did not, her vigil would sometimes continue till morning began and the restless aching had worn itself out. That spring, 
She took Kirk Abbott's fraternity pin. But this did not radically change her manner of living. She continued to accept dates with other men. She went out almost wherever she was asked, with almost whoever asked her. And when Kirk protested, she didn't try to explain the fever that made her behave in this way. She simply kissed him until he stopped talking, and was in a mood to forgive her for almost anything that she might conceivably do. From the beginning of adolescence, perhaps earlier, Myra had written a little verse. But this spring, it became a regular practice. Whenever the rising well of unexplainable emotion became so full that its hurt was intolerable, she found that it helped her a little to scribble things down on paper. Single lines or couplets, sometimes whole stanzas, leapt into her mind with the instant completeness of slides flashed on the screen of a magic lantern. Their beauty startled her. Sometimes it was like a moment of religious exaltation. She stood in a frozen attitude. Her breath was released in a sigh. Each time she felt as though she were about to penetrate some new area of human thought. She had the sensation of standing upon the verge of a shadowy vastness which might momentarily flower into a marvelous crystal of light, like a ballroom that is dark one moment and is the next moment illuminated by the sun-like brilliance of a hundred glass chandeliers and reflecting mirrors and polished floors. At such times, she would turn out the light in her bedroom and go quickly to the window. When she looked out across the purple-dark town and the snowy white dome above the quadrangle, or when she sat as in a spell, listening to the voices that floated down the quiet streets, singers of blue songs or laughing couples and roadsters, the beauty of it no longer tormented her. She felt, instead, a mysterious quietness, as though some disturbing question had been answered, and life had accordingly become a much simpler and more pleasurable experience. Words are a net to catch beauty! Exclamation point. She wrote this in the back of a notebook toward the close of a lecture on the taxing powers of Congress. It was late in April when she wrote this, and from then on it seemed that she understood what she wanted, and the hurt bewilderment in her grew less acute. In the poetry club, to which Myra belonged, there was a boy named Homer Stallcup, who had been in love with her for a year or more. She could tell this by the way that he looked at her during the club sessions, which were the only occasions on which they met. Homer never looked directly at her. His eyes slid quickly across her face, but something about his expression, even about the tense pose of his body as he sat gripping his knees, made her feel his awareness of her. He avoided sitting next to her, or even directly across from her. The chairs were usually arranged in a circle. And because of this, she had at first thought that he must dislike her. But she had come gradually to understand that his shyness toward her had an exactly opposite meaning. 
Homer was not a fraternity member. He waited on tables at a campus restaurant, fired furnaces, and did chores for his room and board. Nobody in Myra's social milieu knew him or paid him any attention. He was rather short, stocky, and dark. Myra thought him good-looking, but certainly not in any usual way. He had intense black eyes, a straight nose with flaring nostrils, full, mobile lips that sometimes jerked nervously at the corners. All of his movements were overcharged. When he rose from a chair, he would nearly upset it. When he lighted a cigarette, his face would twist into a terrible scowl, and he would fling the burnt match away like a lighted firecracker. He went around a great deal with a girl of his own intellectual type, a girl named Hertha something or other, who was rather widely known on the campus because of her odd behavior. In classes, she would be carried away by enthusiasm upon some subject, either literary or political, and she would talk so rapidly that nobody could understand what she was saying, and she would splutter and gasp and make awkward gestures, as though she were trying to pluck some invisible object out of the air, till the room was in an uproar of amusement, and the instructor had to turn his face to the blackboard to conceal his own laughter. Hertha... And this boy, Homer, made a queer picture together. She nearly a foot taller, often rushing along a foot or more in advance of him, clutching him by the coat sleeve as though afraid that he might escape from her. And every minute or so, one or both of them bursting into violent laughter that could be heard for a block. Homer wrote poetry of a difficult sort. It was uneven. Parts of it were reminiscent of Hart Crane. Parts were almost as naively lucid as Sarah Teasdale's. But there were lines and phrases which stabbed at you with their poignant imagery, their fresh observation. When he had given a reading at a symposium, Hertha would always leap out of her chair as though animated by an electric charge, her blinking, nearsighted eyes tensely sweeping the circle of superciliously smiling faces, first demanding, then begging that they concur in the extravagant praise which her moist lips babbled. Only Myra would say anything when Hertha had finished. The rest were too baffled or too indifferent or even too hostile. And Homer's face, darkly flushed, would be turned to his lap throughout the rest of the meeting. His fingers would fold down corners of the neat pages as though the poetry had been erased from them or had never been written on them, as though these pages were simply blank pieces of paper for his fingers to play with. Myra always wanted to say something more, but her critical vocabulary was slight. I think that was lovely, she would say. Or, I liked that very much. And Homer would not lift his eyes. His face would turn even darker. 
and she would bite her tongue as though in remorse for an unkind speech. She wanted to put her hands over his fingers to make them stop crumpling the neat pages, to make them be still. It was not till the last meeting of the year, in early June, that Myra had the courage to approach him. After that meeting, she saw him standing by the water fountain at the end of the corridor. She rushed impulsively up to him and told him, all in one breath, that his was the best unpublished verse she'd ever heard, that he should submit it to some of the good literary magazines, that she thought the other members of the club were absolute fools for not understanding. Homer stood with his fists clenched in his pockets. He did not look at her face the whole time she was speaking. When she had stopped, his excitement burst through. He tore a sheaf of manuscripts from his briefcase and thrust them into her hands. Please read them, he begged, and let me know what you think. They went downstairs together. On the bottom step, he tripped or slid, and she had to catch his arm to prevent him from falling. She was both touched and amused by this awkwardness and by his apparent delight in walking beside her. As they went out of the white stone building, the late afternoon sun, yellow as lemon, met their faces in a beneficent flood. The air was filled with the ringing of 5.30 bells and the pliant voices of pigeons. A white feather from one of the stirring wings floated down and lighted upon Myra's hair. Homer lifted it off, and thrust it in his hatband. And all the way home, after leaving him, Myra could feel that quick, light touch of his fingers. She wondered if he would keep the pigeon's feather, treasure it, possibly, for a long while afterward, because it had once touched her person. That night, when the sorority house was submerged in darkness, she took out the sheaf of poems and read them through without stopping. As she read, she felt a rising excitement. She did not understand very much of what she was reading, but there was a cumulative effect, a growing intensity in the sequence. When she had finished, she found herself trembling, trembling as when you step from warm water into chill air. She dressed and went downstairs. She didn't know what she was planning to do. Her movements were without any conscious direction, and yet she had never moved with more certainty. She opened the front door of the sorority house, ran down the brick-paved walk, turned to the left, and continued swiftly through the moonlit streets till she had reached Homer's residence. It startled her to find herself there. There were cicadas burring in the large oaks. She had not heard them until this moment. And when she looked upward, she saw a close group of stars above the western gable of the large frame house. The Seven Sisters. They were huddled together like virgin wanderers through a dark forest. She listened and there was not a voice anywhere. 
nothing except the chant of cicadas and the faint, faint rustling of her white skirt when she moved. She went quickly around the side of the house to the door that she had seen Homer come out of in the mornings. She gave two short, distinct raps, then flattened herself against the brick wall. She was breathing rapidly. After waiting a while, she knocked again. Through the glass pane, she could see down a flight of stairs into the basement. The door of a lamplit room was open. She saw first a moving shadow, then the boy himself, catching a heavy brown robe about his body and frowning up at the door as he mounted toward it. As the door came open, she gasped his name. For a whole minute, it seemed, he said nothing. Then he caught her arm and pulled her inside the door. Myra, it's you. Yes, it's me, <laughs> she laughed. I don't know what came over me. I've been reading your poetry, and I just felt like I had to see you at once and tell you... Her breath gave out. She leaned against the closed door. It was her eyes this time, and not his, that looked for concealment. She looked down at the bottom of his ugly brown bathrobe, and she saw his bare feet beneath it, large and bony and white, and the sight of them frightened her. She remembered the intense, fleeting way of his eyes sliding over her face and body, and the way he trembled that afternoon when she came up to him in the corridor. How those large feet had tripped on the bottom stair, and she had been forced to catch him to keep him from falling. There was one thing in particular, she went on with a struggle. There was something about a field of blue flowers. Oh, yes, he whispered. The blue children, you mean? Yes, that was it. Now she lifted her eyes eagerly. Come down to my room, Myra. I couldn't. You couldn't? No, of course not. If anyone caught me, they wouldn't. I'd be expelled. There was a slight pause. Wait a minute. He ran down three steps and turned. Wait for me just one minute, Myra. She felt her head nodding. She heard his running down the rest of the steps and into the basement room where he lived. Through the door, she saw his shadow moving about the floor and the walls. He was dressing. Once he stepped into the portion of the bedroom that she could see through the half-open door, and he stood in her sight naked from the waist up, and she was startled and strangely moved by that brief glimpse of his full, powerful chest and arms strikingly etched with shadows thrown by the lamp. In that moment, he acquired in her mind a physical reality which he had never had before.
a very great physical reality. Greater than she had felt in Kirk Abbott or in any of the other young men that she had gone with on the campus. A minute later, he stepped out of the door and closed it and came quietly up the short flight of steps to where she was standing. I'm sorry I took so long. It wasn't long. He took her arm, and they went out of the door and around to the front of the house. The oak tree in the front lawn appeared gigantic. Everything was peculiarly sharpened or magnified, even the crunch of gravel underneath their two pairs of white shoes. Everything was peculiarly sharpened or magnified, even the crunch of gravel under their two pairs of white shoes. She expected to see startled, balloon-like heads thrust out of all the upstairs windows, to hear voices calling a shrill alarm, her name shouted from rooftops, the rushing of crowds in pursuit. "'Where are we going?' she asked as he led her south along the brick walk. "'I want to show you the field I describe in the poem.' It wasn't far.
The walk soon ended, and under their feet was the plushy coolness of earth. The moon flowed aqueously through the multitude of pointed oak leaves. The dirt road was also like moving water with its variations of light and shade. They came to a low wooden fence. The boy jumped over it, then held out his arms. She stepped to the top rail, and he lifted her down from it. On the other side, his arms did not release her, but held her closer. This is it, he told her. The field of blue children. She looked beyond his dark shoulder, and it was true. The whole field was covered with dancing blue flowers. There was a wind scudding through them, and they broke before it in pale blue waves, sending up a soft, whispering sound, like the infinitely diminished crying of small children at play. She thought of the view from her window at night, those nights when she cried bitterly without knowing why, the dome of the administration building like a white peak and the restless waves of moonlit branches, and the stillness and the singing voices, mournfully remote, blocks away, coming closer, the tender, foolish ballads, and the smell of the white spiria at night, and the stars, clear as lamps in the cloud-fretted sky. And she remembered the choking emotion that she didn't understand, and the dread of all this coming to its sudden, final conclusion in a few months or weeks more. And she tightened her arms around the boy's shoulders. He was almost a stranger. She knew that she had not even caught a first glimpse of him until this night, and yet he was inexpressibly close to her now, closer than she had ever felt any person before. He led her out over the field where the flowers rose in pale blue waves to her knees, and she felt their soft petals against her bare flesh, and she lay down among them and stretched her arms through them and pressed her lips against them, and felt them all about her, accepting her, and embracing her, and a kind of drunkenness possessed her. The boy knelt beside her, and touched her cheek with his fingers, and then her lips, and her hair, they were both kneeling in the blue flowers, facing each other. He was smiling. The wind blew her loose hair into his face. He raised both hands and brushed it back over her forehead, and as he did so, his hands slipped down behind the back of her head and fastened there and drew her head toward him 
until her mouth was pressed against his, tighter and tighter, until her teeth pressed painfully against her upper lip, and she tasted the salt taste of blood. She gasped and let her mouth fall open, and then she lay back among the whispering blue flowers. We will now take a brief intermission. 